Welcome to the Restore Church Sermons podcast. We're so glad you joined us here today. We hope that through this message, you are encouraged, challenged, and strengthened. If you want to know more about Jesus, Restore Church, or have any questions, please head to restorechurch.com.au. Okay, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. If you've got your Bibles there, uh, you might want to open them up to an oldie but a goodie, 2 Kings chapter 5. You, many of you will know this, some of you may not, but hopefully you'll be able to follow along. I, I want to look at this story um, in the Old Testament today uh, because I think it illustrates um, something I think that follows on a little bit from the stuff we've been talking about in the last few weeks, at least in terms of how we see things. And the reason I want to do that is because what I find is, I don't know if it's true for you guys, it's certainly true for me, but sometimes we can get sort of stuck in a groove um, in terms of how we see and understand and interpret things. And often if we're not aware of that fact or self-aware enough to realise that, we begin to sort of view and see everything through the conclusions we've already formed rather than being able to pause and allow a new piece of information to challenge the way we see things. Do you understand what I'm saying? So sometimes we can just, like, something will come and we've already got our default position and we screen out a whole bunch of stuff. And what I want us to understand, and it's particularly following on from last week, if you weren't here, I was talking about the Bible and how we read and interpret Scripture and apply it. Um, it's worth listening to, I think, because it kind of sets the scene for this. But um, even reading the Bible can be that sort of challenge for us. We can read something and not even look at what we're reading, nor the implications of what we're reading. We just kind of skim over it, because in our minds, we kind of think that we already get it. And this story, I think, actually really does a good job of highlighting just how different um, things can actually be from the way we actually think they are. So for a start, in this story, for those of you who haven't read it, we've got a guy called Naaman, and it says in verse 1 that he was a commander of the army of the king of Aram, which is um, modern-day Syria. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram and he was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now, just in that one verse, there's a few things that you need to see because they already challenge our probably widely accepted standard of how things are. The first is that the hero of this story is an enemy of Israel. And that's not how things work, is it? In God's economy, it's really clear. There are the people with the white hats and the people with the black hats. There, are the, there is us and there is them, yes? And God is on whose side? God, whose side is God on? Our side, right. Thank you very much. You've got to get with it, people, okay? And God is on our side. And that's all there is to it. And in a sense, it's almost like it's kind of carte blanche that, that you know, we get to do what we want because we belong to God, da-da-da-da-da-da. But Naaman is a, is a Syrian and he's the commander of the army that is the enemy of Israel. But it gets worse from there. Now, when you read your Bible, especially the Old Testament, sometimes you'll come across the word Lord and it's written in, in um, caps. Have you noticed that? When they do that, that's because they're very specifically letting you know this is Yahweh, okay? Because in the Old Testament, you're dealing with one, more than one God most of the time. There's gods of all sorts of nations. And so when they put Lord in capital letters, they're translating the word Yahweh, meaning the God of Israel. And what you see in this story 
is that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given Naaman, Israel's enemy, victory over Israel. Does that seem weird? Okay. And again, most of us think that the way things operate are already established. There's us and there's them and there's we're on God's side and they're not on God's side. But what it shows us is that we can't take that sort of thing for granted. It's not that God doesn't love us and God isn't for us, but to automatically assume that just because at some point, you know, we, we made a decision to belong to a certain group of people, in this case the church, that everything we then do has kind of divine imprimatur on it. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's that story with Joshua when he's about to go into battle and an angel appears. And Joshua goes up to the, the angel and he said, are you for us or for our enemies? And the angel responds, neither. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. So, so the issue is not, is God on our side? But are we on God's side? That's the important thing. We can't just assume that because we belong in a certain, in a certain scheme of things, in a certain place, that, that God is automatically on our side in everything. So just in this first verse, we're already starting to see that it's not the way we normally think about things. But then it goes on to say that he was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. So Naaman was this great man. The, um, the Hebrew term is ishkadol. It means he was highly respected, highly revered. But it adds this, but he had leprosy. Now the word leprosy can be translated um, as uh, the, the word doesn't have to mean leprosy. It can just mean a skin condition. But either way, Naaman was dealing with something that actually made him a little bit of a social outcast or at least marred uh, his workings in some way. And in those days, what I want us to understand is those two things didn't go together. To be a great person of great standing, of great respect, but to also be bordering on being a social outcast, that didn't work. So Naaman was a bit of a paradox. And I don't know if you know this, but you're a paradox as well. And I'm a paradox as well. See, everyone has a but. And I mean that with just one T. <laughs> Where's he going with this? I might leave, I'm uncomfortable. B-U-T. Everyone has a but. We're all mixed bags. There are those things about us that are good, that are virtuous, that are the things that we want to present to the world, things that we see in ourselves, the good stuff that other people see in us. But then there's also this other side of us as well, isn't there? This shadow side, this leprous side, if you like. Um, the stuff that we don't want to present to the world, but it actually exists. And often the people around us and closest to us are the ones that get to see it. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Anyone married? Okay. Uh, you get to see this stuff all the time. I mean, it's like, I know you think I've got it all together, right? And, but the truth is I don't. And you think, man, you're just like, you're so good at everything that you do and, you know, you're just pretty much faultless in our eyes. But I can tell you right now, um, my wife could tell you some stories and I'm glad she's not here today because she would be yelling out examples of this, this sort of stuff. But the thing about a paradox is they're seemingly 
contradictory things that coexist. They're not actually a contradiction in the sense that one doesn't cancel out the other. In a paradox, things that seemingly contradict actually coexist quite happily, even if they don't look like they should. And that sums up us humans to a T. There is all this great stuff about us. There is all this good stuff about us. And then there's this stuff about us that's just not so great at all. And that's why I love, and I think particularly the genius of some of Jesus' teaching, because he was helping us in, just through the stuff that he said. And again, when you read it and you see it, what he's actually doing, um, sometimes you know, the greater object lesson is not the only point in there. There's other things going on. And so you see him breaking down this idea and kind of getting it into our minds that, that it's okay to be both of these things at one and the same time because that's just the way humans are. And there's that particular story that does that for me in the Good Samaritan because in Jesus' day, those two things were actually contra was a contradiction in terms. You could be a Samaritan or you could be good, but you couldn't be both because these were half-breeds. Half apostates, people who turned away from God and they were not God's people. So you could be good or you could be a Samaritan, but you couldn't be both. And in that story, Jesus says, no, that's not true. You can be both of these things at one of the same time and demonstrate that you understand more about God <laughs> than the people who aren't that thing. That was a genius in that particular story. See, it's so much easier for us just to categorise or define ourselves and other people one way or the other rather than live with the tension that paradox brings, yes? I mean, most of us don't like living with tension. We always want to resolve it. It always wants to be this or that. But we are called to both view ourselves and see ourselves and, and one another as this beautiful kind of paradox. And we have to resist categorising ourselves and categorising other people. It's really just a question of what predominates for us. What, what do we actually choose to focus on? Do we see Naaman the great man or do we see Naaman the leper in ourselves or in people? There's this story in Luke 8 that I was reading the other day and I, I'd never noticed this before but it began to bother me. And it's, it's a story about two healings, well one kind of resuscitation and one healing and it's, it's Jairus' daughter but it's also the story of the woman with the issue of blood. You know the story I'm talking about? So Jesus is walking through town and Jairus, who's a lo local synagogue leader, runs up and he throws himself at Jesus' feet. And he says, my daughter is about to die. You can heal her. Come and heal her. And while he's in that crowd, there's this woman with an issue of blood. And, you know, for years, 12 years, Luke tells us she's been suffering this condition. The doctors haven't been able to heal her. And again, you need to understand that socially meant she could not interact with anyone. Everything she touched was unclean, etc. This had massive ramifications. But the thing that stood out to me was that Jairus gets a name and she's just called the woman with the issue of blood. And yet what is it that she does? While there's this big throng of people, somehow she gets up the guts to squeeze through that crowd and reach out and grab hold of Jesus. And in the process of doing so, she is actually healed. So it makes me wonder why when they're thinking about what to call this story, they call it the woman with the issue of blood. Why she isn't given a name and why at least she isn't called the woman of great faith. Are you with me? We're defining her again by her, her sickness, by the thing that's wrong with her 
rather than the thing that's right with her. It's a question of what predominates in our focus. Um, I think Paul's counsel in Philippians 4.8 is really, really relevant to us. He says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. It doesn't mean that other things are not there and don't need to be dealt with and don't need to be worked on. But what are you going to choose to focus on? What are you going to choose to focus on in yourself? Your greatness or your leprosy? What are you going to choose to focus on in other people? Their greatness or their leprosy? It's a question of what predominates because we are all paradoxes. My wife constantly reminds me, you know, we human beings, Adrian, we're all of these things all at the same time. Because I don't know about you, but A, I get very disappointed in myself sometimes, yes? And secondly, I get very disappointed in other people sometimes. And I have a tendency to react quite strongly sometimes. So everything's fine, but if when someone does something that seriously wrongs me, I have a tendency to go, that's that. That is all there is to that person. And because I'm married to someone who probably will have a very special place in heaven because of the purgatory she has had to live with me, um, she reminds me that is not all there is to them. And you know that. You know that they are both good and bad. You know they've got some fantastic qualities about them and some stuff that sucks just like you. To which I say, shut up, I didn't ask your opinion. <laughs> and I was telling you a couple of weeks ago that one of the well-known Christian leaders that I follow on Twitter, a couple of times he's put some stuff on that I just find absolutely heinous. And I thought the easiest thing for me to do is just completely unfollow him. And then I thought about it and I thought, no, that's, this is exactly the point. Here's me saying, he has said a couple of things that I strongly disagree with and I think are absolutely objectively wrong, especially for someone in his position. But is that all there is to that man? No. Does that negate all the wonderful things that he has said and done over these years? No. He has, in my opinion... And it is my opinion, although I think God agrees with me, it's my opinion that he has miscalculated this and done the wrong thing. Does that wipe out everything else? No. Now, on an interpersonal level, people, do you understand what I'm talking about? Who does this? Who's ready to sort of go, mm, you can just stay over there? Yeah. If we want people to show us grace and accept our butt. <laughs> we need to do the same for others, yes? We need to do the same for others. And, 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 the con and, and another sort of nuance to this is that if we don't, if we simply evaluate and judge people by the butt, we may miss out on some very good things that they have to offer, yes? Some very good things to offer. Because sometimes truth comes in some pretty rubbish packaging. Yeah? Sometimes some, real, some gold, some gems can come to us in shapes and forms that we wouldn't readily accept. And so we have to drop our prejudices and our biases. We have to cut ourselves that sort of slack and that sort of grace. And we have to be prepared to extend it to others. 
The other thing I want to point out in this thing, and I'm, there's so much in this chapter, like I'm not going to read it all, we'll be here today just reading it, so I'm going to paraphrase some of it. But there's another little nugget in here that, that just speaks to me. And what happens is that Naaman's got leprosy, but, but Aram, some bands, it says that some bands of raiders had gone out and they'd taken a young Israelite girl captive. And she was part of Naaman's household. And so when she knew about Naaman's condition, she said, look, there's a prophet in Israel who could cure him of this. Why don't you just go over and see the prophet and get healed? Now, I don't know how their political world works, where you can be at war with one people one minute, the next minute you're asked, knock at, they're knocking at their door asking if they can do you a favour. I don't know, understand how this works. But here we go. Go and see this prophet in Israel because he can cure you of this. So Naaman goes to his king. Okay, now... The name of the king of Aram was Ben-Hadad, or Ben-Rimon, right? Rimon was the god of Aram. So the king is the son of the local demonic deity. Are you with me? I'm just, this is for context, and it'll become clear in a minute why. So Naaman goes to Ben-Rimon and says, can I go over to Egypt? Can you give me a letter so that I don't get sort of whatever, brutalized or whatever? So he says, sure. And in this letter, he writes to the king of Israel, Joram, and he says, I'm sending you my servant Naaman that you may cure him of his leprosy. And Joram reads this letter and has an absolute spack attack and rips his clothes because he's been on the Red Bull all day, right? He's just like completely flips out and says, this is a trap. They're doing this to try and kill me. Am I a god that I can heal? La, 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 la. Okay? And it reminded me, and please forgive me, people, if you've heard me tell this story. I don't think I've told it many times. But when I was serving out at Seven Hills, out at the Restore, or Rhythms as it was then, we had this woman as part of our community out there. And she had had a genuinely, genuinely terrible life. I mean, a genuinely terrible life. Her own family had kind of disowned her. She had been in an incredibly violent marriage. Um, she was really mixed up. And she really didn't know what it was like to just have another person care about her or love her. She'd never really experienced that. And she had a dog. And she loved this dog. I mean, to say she... We all love our pets, right? But, but this was probably the first thing that had shown her any real affection. So there was a connection there like you wouldn't believe. One day she came in and she said... She was bawling. And she said, um, you know, Flossie's run away. And I can't find her. And she was howling. She was so upset. I said, Let, it's fine. We'll... We'll deal with this. It's okay. So I got on the internet and I actually found, I don't know if you know about this, there's like a dog finding services that exist, right? So it was going to cost $180 and these people guarantee you they bring their dog back. So I'm like, I'm, I'm just going to get this for her. Now, I don't know what this dog finding service is. And it could be two guys in a ute on their way to the pub whistling, here boy. You know, like I don't know what it is, right? I've no idea. But I'm thinking in the absence of like, scouring all of Seven Hills and Laylor Park and Blacktown. These guys are like, you know, guarantee they're going to find the dog. So I run downstairs and I go, I've, I've found this group, I've, I've, I'm going to pay for it and, and we'll find your dog. And she goes, why don't we just pray? <laughs> I'm like, right. <laughs> pastor, pagan. Pastor, pagan. She had no faith. She wasn't brought up in church. She wasn't a believer. And there was this person saying to me, 
Why don't you pray? I'm like, okay. <laughs> He's smarty, right? So we did. I said, okay, let's pray. Two hours later, someone returned the dog. Okay? Right. It was the name and story all over again for me because the person that was supposed to have the faith didn't have the faith and the person that should not have had the faith in that God had the faith. Have you ever encountered that? You know? So here's this son of Ramon, this son of a local deity, <laughs> a demonic deity, saying, sure, get the God of Israel to heal you. The God of Israel goes, how's that ever going to happen? It's never going to happen. How are we going to do this? It's all just a trap. That is not how it's supposed to work. Because again, there are people who are in and there are people who are out and the people who are in know how it all works and they know all the God stuff and God's on their side and the people who are out don't. It's that simple. In my world, there are very clear categories. Your socks and undies go in this drawer. Your T-shirts and your shorts go in this drawer. And that's how it works with the rest of life. A place for everything and everyone in their place. Yes? That's how it works. These guys are mixing up the drawers. They're mixing up the categories. Because Joram should know how it works. Ben-Hadad, you don't know how it works. But Ben-Hadad knows how it works and Joram does not know how it works. Pagan girl with the dog knows how it works. <laughs> Pastor with all the massive qualifications doesn't. Okay? You're mixing up the drawers. Categories only work so far. Because sometimes the people out there have a better idea of God than the people in here. And I mean, Jesus found that on a couple of occasions, didn't he? There's one where a Roman centurion comes to him who needs his servant healed. And he goes, okay, let's go. And the centurion says, no, you don't. Jesus, you don't even need to be there. You just say the word and my servant's going to be healed. I know how authority works. And Jesus said, I've not seen such faith in all of Israel. Again, Here's a pagan <laughs> demonstrating faith that the people of God don't seem to get. And then he's having dinner and a Syrophoenician woman comes up to him, a Canaanite, that's what she is, she's a Canaanite, an enemy of Israel, again, a pagan. And she says, Jesus, my daughter is sick. And he said, it's not right for me to take the, the children's food and throw it to the dogs. And she said, no, fair enough, but I'll have the crumbs. And he said, wow, again. This type of faith I don't find around here. You can go. Your, ch your child is now healed. Both times, the people who were on the out showed more faith than the people who were on the inside. We come across that sort of stuff all the time. The people who have the stories, the people who have the buildings, the people who have the nice carpet, you know. Um, we miss stuff sometimes that these people get intuitively. But again, if our categories are so strong, if our way of thinking is so entrenched, we're not going to necessarily see when the stuff that they're seeing, the fact that they are in fact seeing God and doing stuff that is in line with God, that God is alive and active in that world. You know, there's a bit of an arrogance about the way we approach things in church world, and that is we think we are the exporters of God. That we've got God, we've got him trapped in our boxes like we've talked about, you know, our physical boxes, our program boxes, our, our worldview boxes. And, and our job is to transport him out into that world where he is, doesn't exist, where people don't know about him. But let me tell you, he's already out there. He's out there and he's at work. 
But if our categories are so strong and our thinking so entrenched, we're not going to see that when we come across it out there. We're not going to be able to identify it and be able to get alongside someone and go, you know that thing? That's, that's, that's what it looks like to do life with God. You know what I learned that day with the lost doggy? I learned that God cares about lost dogs. And he cares about lost dogs because it mattered so much to this woman that matters so much to him. To me, in all honesty, at that point in my life, it seemed like a frivolous thing to pray for, like a car park, except at Christmas when it's very important to pray for car parks. <laughs> but it seemed like a, you know, a dog. It's a dog. It's a dog. But it was her life. And it was God's way of saying, you matter to me. Do you know the conversation we were able to have after that? It was amazing. But I was able to affirm to her, not just that God cares, but do you realise what you just did? You, just, you actually believe that if we prayed, God would bring the dog back. Yeah? I'm like, well, you were one up on me at that point. You really were. You might think you're a long way from God, but you're nowhere near as far away from God as you think. It was a great conversation after that. Anyway, let me push on and finish. Elisha goes over there and he sees, uh, sorry, not Elisha, Naaman goes over and he sees Elisha. And Elisha doesn't even come out and meet him, right? And he's all really offended and he says, you know, I expected him to wave his hands over me and do some great thing. And all Elisha says is go and bathe in the Jordan seven times. And Naaman says, the Jordan, that's, some, that's a filthy little creek. There are these really big rivers in Syria, much nicer. Why don't I just do it there? And fortunately, Naaman's... Um, sort of entourage uh, speak sense into him and say, you know, if he had said do some grand thing, you would do it. The fact that he's telling you to just go and bathe in the Jordan, you're really struggling with, you probably need to get over yourself and you need to go and do this. And Naaman, to his credit, he actually does it, but he's not happy in it. And what I see in that, that little transaction there is that Naaman, yeah, again, I'm very much like Naaman in this sometimes, I'm always expecting to find God in the big flashy things, rather than the little, maybe dirty, uh, un, you know, unclean things. Do you know what I'm saying? That I'm always expecting to find God in the big stuff and the flashy stuff. But, but actually what I realise is that God is in the little stuff most of the time. God is in the dozens of decisions that I need to make every day. God is in the dozens of situations I find myself in every day. And my greatest growth as a follower of Jesus, isn't some momentous event or some giant leap forward I take, for, I take that day. It is in incrementally seeing and responding faithfully to those little things in those little places that God is calling me to do. Yeah? Over time. Over time, those things begin to amass and they begin to grow exponentially. And that's what I think we need to get our minds around again. This is why pride never gets us anywhere. People who are too proud to do the little things, people who are too proud to go into the out-of-the-way places, people who are too proud to do things without a crowd watching or getting some sort of affirmation, they're not going to experience the kingdom because that's where the kingdom is. It's doing the things that no one else sees except God sometimes. I mean, this was the thing for Naaman. There was going to be no big ceremony. He wanted something that, in his opinion, was befitting of his position in life 
and match the solemnity or the, you know, the grandiosity of the occasion. And yet Elisha was like, God's in that filthy little creek over there, mate. If you just go and wash yourself seven times, if you can just humble yourself enough to do that one thing, there's going to be healing come your way. And again, that's why pride never gets us anywhere because we have to be humble enough to do the little things in the out-of-the-way places because that's what God sees and honours. So maybe the thing you need and the thing you're hoping for and praying for at the moment, you're expecting to come in some big, flashy move of God or some big, ostentatious way. But it actually, the thing you really need might right actually be in front of you right now and you've always known it. It might be to talk to that person, to write that letter, to forgive that person, to be thankful for that thing that you've got, to say yes to that request, to do that service thing that you, you think you don't have time to do. That may be the thing that unlocks some sort of growth or healing in your own life rather than looking for some big flashy thing. Anyway, let me finish by saying Naaman and his servants... You know, they talk him into to actually doing it. Um, he goes and he does it and he's healed. And he comes back to Elisha and he says, I know that now there is no God except for the God of Israel. Right, he's able to do this. He's, he's, he's amazing. And, um, you know, will you accept this money on my behalf? You know, just say thank you. And Elisha's like, no, I, no, no money, no money. So uh, Naaman says, well, can I just take some dirt with me? Which seems like a fair trade. Can I give you some money? No. Can I take some dirt? Knock yourself out. Um, it's a kind of weird thing, but there is a reason behind it because deities were localised, right? There was the... Rimon was the god of Aram and Yahweh was the god of Israel. And so even though he realises that, that there is no other god except Israel, he belongs to Israel. So he wants to take a little bit of Israel back with him in the form of dirt so Yahweh comes with him, okay? Not very well-developed thinking, but you've got to give him points anyway, okay? All right, so he does that. But then he says to Elisha, there's another thing you need to know. I, I have to go with my master, the king, every day into the temple of Ramon. I have to go in there, I have to be on his arm, and every day I'm going to bow down to Ramon. Can you forgive me for that? And Elisha, being a really good Christian, says, no way. You get yourself down to Kurong, you buy a Go Against the Flow t-shirt, you put, you put a no compromise sticker on your bumper bar, you man, you, uh, you do not go into the Temple of Ramon under any circumstances. You backsliding, compromising so-and-so. Actually, he doesn't say any of that. He says, go in peace. Shalom. In other words... Everything's okay between you and God. You and God are okay. You go. And he does. Now again, where this bumps up against some of the predominant thinking in Christian circles is that we're told that our trajectory is away from those places, not back into them. Yeah? Wherever there is darkness, wherever there is all this sort of stuff, we need to get away from that sort of stuff or it's going to affect us. You know that we lease this place out to various community groups. Well, one of the groups we lease this place out to is a meditation group. And we've had a couple of well-meaning nutcases email us to say, you shouldn't be doing this, 
basically Satan's going to destroy you all. You've opened the door. It's like they're not vampires, right? It's not like if you invite someone in, you know, I'm in there. It's like you let these people in your building and and it's going to unleash all this unholy demonic activity. Has anyone heard that stuff before, right? At what point does the Bible ever tell us that darkness is greater than light? Seriously. Where, where in the Bible does it tell us that darkness can overcome the light? It always tells me that light overcomes the darkness, yes? So the irony is the people who are biggest on this are the ones that sing all the song about how, songs about how powerful Jesus is and then panic when someone turns up with a Reiki T-shirt on, Right? And it's like, I'm sorry, but if anyone's going to get affected around here, it's you. Because greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world, yes? That's how it works. Now, I'm not advocating that we're going to open this place up to a black mass, all right? But here's the thing. Light needs to get up against darkness to affect it, yes? Ben Rimon, okay, right now he's named after the chief local deity, but on his arm in that temple every day is someone who knows that Yahweh is the true God of Israel. What do you think might happen in that scenario? Hey, I know we're bowing down to this big block of concrete every now and then, but remember me? I'm the guy that had leprosy. I'm healed. Do you think maybe we give up on this guy and start following that guy? It doesn't say that, but can we at least conjecture to make ourselves feel good? Yeah? All right? There is the possibility that happens. Why, why do we afraid? You know, when I read the Gospels, there were people that Jesus wasn't allowed to touch because, again, ritualistically, it would make you unclean. You couldn't touch a dead person. You couldn't touch a leper. All right? You couldn't touch a woman who was bleeding. What did Jesus do? He touched all of them. Who was changed? They were. Jesus didn't develop leprosy. He didn't start bleeding and he didn't die. All right? He was never ritually uncleaned because when unclean touches clean, it gets cleaned. Yes? So here we are in the church today feeling like we have to avoid all these places where darkness is. Now, there are some common sense things about that. There are some places maybe it's not wise to go because it's not safe. But the principle that somehow we are going to be tainted, we need to again look at it in light of what Scripture says. And Scripture says that darkness cannot stand when light comes on. We have the light. The light is in us. The light of the world is in us. So I fully expect that if people come in here and they want to do their oogity-boogity stuff, that's fine. All right? I've already had one email from someone in that meditation group to say, I saw you guys were having a meeting one night when we were in there. I'd like to find out more about Christianity. Come on, light. Team light. Team light. Okay. But do you see what I mean? It, it might be incremental. It may not be revival. But, but here it is. Here's a case in point. Where there's darkness and it comes into a place of light, light wins, right? And we've got to stop pretending that it's, it's the other way around. Anyway, I, 
I've just got too much to go, so I'm going to stop there, all right? Um, the good news was I actually lost this today. I got to, I couldn't find the file anywhere, and I just went, I'm going to go home, and hopefully no one will notice. Um, but I found it, and so I'm thinking maybe I was meant to, 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 to speak this this morning. But I'm going to leave it there. But again, the point is this, um, in what we've been talking about. Let's not be so hard and fast with our categories and our ways of seeing things. Let's have the capacity to pause and be self-aware enough about what we're seeing, hearing and confronting and whether or not the place we're coming from is it or whether we need to in fact change how we see things a little bit. Because this is our journey going forward, people. There's, it's not just now, it's, it's a forever thing that we need to be people who are constantly allowing ourselves to be challenged by new things and new challenges and new ways because God has called us on a, on a greater journey of learning just how big he is and how it all works. And I think sometimes we've, you know, we talk about putting God in a box. Um, I think he's really desperate for us to, to let him out of that, well, the box that we've created for him. Um, and we will see more fruit from that personally and as a church. Amen? Amen. We're going to take communion now. So um, it is set at the sides and the back. And again, it's open to everyone. Um, you just go, you go to the table, you take some bread, take some juice. You may pray with someone, you can pray by yourself. There's no wrong way of doing this. But just to focus on Jesus, his victory, um, and everything that he has done for us. Thank you.